place is now. And it's forever. Ghosts of my life. Yeah, I could, that's a germane line if I've ever heard. And monarch of not the flight of Lucifer over London, my little grandson, wrinkled some forehead, all tiny blue pain, the mother blood emerges, then the mother grief. We are back. Uh, for our final episode in season one, we made it, everyone. That was Lucifer over London by Current 93. Watch and as we try and talk about everything except this movie. We are Lost Futures, a Mark Fisher podcast, in our final episode. And I'm Steven. And I'm Marlo. And we are doing Tremors of an Imperceptible Future, Patrick Keeler's Robinson and Ruins, an essay from Sight and Sound, a very prestigious British publication. They put out a top 10 movie list every year and then people fight over it. Why do they fight over it? Uh, because like it becomes a race to like, did you just watch that movie because it was on the Sight and Sound list like a poser or is it a movie that you saw because... You're already a smart person who watches good fucking French movies from the 70s and 60s. So it's a pretentious... Yeah, there's a bit of pretension about it. And then there's, like, the, like, like put fucking sad Frenchman movie number three down from, like, six to eighth. And then people, like, get angry and shit. It's a whole fucking thing. Uh, but, yeah, no, it's a, it's a very prestigious film publication from England. <laughs> that I'm just shitting on because I'm an anti-intellectual. Marlo, noted anti-intellectual in our finale. Uh, I'm a populist. Marlo is a populist. Uh, okay. You heard it here first. Give me fucking the AV Club and a six-pack of beers any day. <laughs> <laughs> the AV Club. Give me rotten tomatoes <laughs> and Give me some the... skull fucking mint pouches. Uh, Marlo is a firm believer in the red letter media universe of yeah, sure. film criticism. Yeah, you should like only criticize shitty Marvel movies that you already were going to hate, and we know that already. And then like fucking other shitty movies that are at least sort of fun to watch, but like it's also just like a guy making a workout video for seventy year olds in nineteen eighty nine. Well, sometimes they do weirdo um, French film. Remember the one that they did about the... Well, the, yeah, they have the review. They did the one about the fucking the car. Anyway. Well, it's been fun remembering old episodes for Letter <laughs> Media. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Titane, where the per, a, per, a woman goes into a car and she's, it's implied she fucks the car. Okay. 
Uh, it actually fits into the theme of this episode. Masturbation. <laughs> no, nature versus non-nature. Oh, God, yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, fuck, I hated this and shit. And Frankenstein. Um, yeah. What's Robinson and Ruins? Okay, well, actually, it starts out with a short story that is not Robinson and <laughs> Ruins. So let's talk about that. <laughs> this is our continuous deferral <laughs> of... Not talking about this video essay that we watched uh, about an hour of before video shutting Video essay off. is giving it too much credit. He calls it a video essay. Yeah, okay. He starts all talking about the Ellis Sharp's short story, The Hay Wayne, which is also named after a painting called The Hay Wayne. Yep. In The Hay Wayne, it takes place in the year 1990 uh uh, and at the time, uh, Margaret Thatcher is doing a thing that's going to eventually lose her the leadership of the Conservative Party. She decided to implement a poll tax. A poll tax, for you Americans, is not a tax on voting. That is a different thing that is also called a poll tax that occurred. Specifically, it wasn't like really a thing generally until like Reconstruction America, like needed to get like creative about being racist so anyway a poll tax uh in the historical usage uh literally it means a head tax i.e a set amount of money being taxed on each person who needs to pay taxes so each adult person pay like a hundred bucks that's your taxes it's not based on income it's not based on anything else obviously it hurts the poor more than the rich it is, in fact, a thing that was, by the Founding Fathers, made illegal in uh, the United States Constitution. Yeah, because we don't do that monarchy tax. Right. It, on, it was, like, always seen by, like, your Enlightenment guys who read Adam Smith as, like, a particularly pernicious sort of tax. Um, it's authoritarianism is what right. it is. Um, it's the overreach I mean, to, by the government. To be clear, this is absolutely just grabbing property from the bottom up. Like, don't I mean, tread on me. This is just like... This is the don't tread is, on me. Well, I mean, yeah, this is just to be clear, like, you know, I'm not saying that these arguments are wrong. It is, in fact, like one of the most egregious forms of a tax that obviously hurts the poor more than the rich, uh, like in a very clear way. So anyway, Margaret Thatcher uh, decided to do that in 1990. Hugely unpopular, led to widespread riots. Probably, I'm pretty sure it's cited as one of the main reasons that she then lost the leadership. So the Haywayne takes place during this. And in this, a uh, rioter during the uh, poll tax protests finds his way into a museum, sees this old English pastoral painting, and he, he has this realization, this realization of class solidarity with the subjects of the painting, these agricultural workers, in this scene that is like typically depicted as pastoral, peaceful, trans politics. Uh, he realizes in this moment that this is a scene of great... Uh, political strife and labor strife and as he's realizing this a uh, police officer bashes on him on the head with a billy club and apparently that's how the story ends starts out with this and then we get into the film yeah the the painting is the hay wayne by john constable it was painted in 1821 it's and a picture of a big beautiful farm landscape and some little guys doing farm work Sure, you can imagine what this painting might look like. 
It looks like that. It also good one. Google it. It's but it also looks exactly like what you'd think this painting. It is interesting how he uses this to kind of set up his argument because all of this he's always noting is the landscape. The English landscape is a site of political struggle. Sure. Um, far from being some refuge from political strife, the English landscape is the site of numerous struggles between the forces of power and privilege and those who sought to resist them. Sharp, Ella Sharp, who wrote The Haywain, replaces the dominant pastoral image of the English countryside, not with a deflated quotidian realism, but with a different kind of lyricism, one colored by revolt. Fields and ditches some hiding places or battlegrounds, landscapes that on the surface seem tranquil still reverberate with an unavenged spectral rage of murderous working-class martyrs. When the poll tax rioter is clubbed by police and his blood starts to stain constable's emblem of English nationhood, we're uncomfortably reminded of more recent episodes. And what recent episodes? I don't think any specific. I think he's generally just i mean he could also be talking about america at this point i mean he's just saying like more oh he was resisting arrest right uh we use minimal force you know just all the justifications for police brutality that commonly uh, occur as of 2010 which kind of uh dovetails from our last episode about the handsworth songs this kind of nicely takes a turn into oh now we're doing two two essays about riots and he kind of like weaves the two in well this is one page that's on a short story on a riot the movie i don't think can be no 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 but he kind of the way this book is is that each essay kind of blends into the next at least mm -hmm. thematically right so then we get into robinson, robinson and ruins which marlowe despises so, so the, 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 remember that like movie we saw about that german guy who like wrote about walking around england it's a lot like that well i thought it was a british guy no no i'm saying that the the sawyer bacher yeah was, yeah okay there's a lot of movies in this that are these weird tiny indie films that are made about walking in england and thinking about stuff and this is this is one of those yeah okay now i remember the um the patience after sabald yeah the sabald book slash documentary about sabald slash documentary about people bloomstains the, the rings of saturn right when yes, he's yes. walking around yeah and then we have the one where it's walking around and Oh my god, it's a 28 days later situation, except without the zombies, but with thinking about stuff. And now we have this one. Well, we also have Chris Petit's content, which is also a Well, film. that's driving around and thinking uh, yeah. about stuff. That's another twist on the genre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of these dinky little... Uh, in the films that Mark is covering, that's like, man, isn't suburban England kind of interesting? Well, yeah, and to bring it all around, he he also does the uh, he has the Zine one, which is about like a space in the. Well, yeah, I mean, I I'm not gonna call that that. That's that's a one that's a Zine about London by someone who's. But like, it is about the place. 
Yeah, sure, sure. I, I just think that's a little less specific than, like, specifically this, like, notion of I'm going to be moving around southern England and, like, waxing about Marx, uh, which seems to come up a lot. So anyway, this is uh, actually uh, the third in a trilogy of films that all seem to be like this. The first one is London from, what, 92, 93? Okay, London, 94. Then 97 is Robinson in Space. And then, yeah, 2010 is Robinson and Rowans. Uh, so these are, in fact, they're very much art house films. They are connected by this kind of threadbare plot. Of an uh, unnamed narrator. That's yes, a big thing. Of an unnamed narrator. Who is walking around with Robinson. Walking around England with Robinson thinking about stuff. And what is he thinking about? Like historical materialism, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like, He's thinking about the birth um, of capitalism, yeah. of how different industries are created. When he looks at a thing, he says, oh, uh, oh here's an airplane field where things are... You know, planes go off and they deliver things to Iraq and Afghanistan. He does that at one point. Mm. You look at a, another thing and it and it transports you into another historical moment. Um, yeah, no, it's a lot of. Here's a here's in a 1830. Thing. Yeah, there was a revolution in France. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Fine, I guess. Um, well, you compared it a lot to Terrence Malick, and I well, think. Yeah, yeah, okay, so that is. Particularly, okay, so we only saw about half of the third one. Um, let's uh, be clear. Yeah, so the third one in particular, this seems like particularly thematic of the third one. The third one, of course, made 2010. The other ones were the 90s, so global warming is a much more present concern for the third one. Well, okay, so all of these movies, to be clear, are static camera shots with no subject. I mean, there might be, like, a guy walking past, and that might be, like, perhaps implied to be Robinson, or it might just be a guy who was walking past when they set the camera up, and they don't ever, like, comment on that. There's no characters talking in the movie. This is all just the narrator with these static, mostly landscapes. Landscapes. Yeah. Um, Big on the landscapes. Yeah. Uh, with no subject. But in the third one in particular, it will then do things where it will do the fucking Malik, let's zoom into a flower and hold that shot for three minutes. Or in this case, Lichen, which becomes Lichen, lichen as the... <laughs> narrator pronounces it which becomes this whole rigmarole like fucking metaphorical idea of symbiosis the idea of mutual aid through nature kind of kropotkin um okay expand on that so i mean kropotkin was in fact a famous anarcho-communist uh philosopher kropotkin peter kropotkin was by day a naturalist, a scientist of biology. You know, we're talking late 1800s, early 20th century. So it was a time where social Darwinism was in vogue as a particular... Like the uh, dominant. As a philosophical stance to justify capitalism. And Kropotkin 
you know, most famously wrote a mutual aid, a factor in evolution, I believe, and some other shit uh, that was specifically making a counter argument to that from a naturalist perspective, arguing actually evolution did not imply this zero sum competition, but that uh, moving forward together was actually more of a mark of natural selection than not. Mutual aid of factor of evolution. That kind of seems to be a thematic element of this movie. Again, plot-wise, in this case, it is like over ten years after the last film came out. Right, and they uh, the thing that Mark Fisher points to and makes kind of a materialist critique of, or at least he links the politics of the 1992 election and 1997 election with London and Robinson and Space, where the general election of 1992 was supposed to end Tory rule. Yeah, there uh, were just a bunch of riots about this fucking poll tax. People hated the Tories. Right, and Margaret Thatcher left and yeah, was Margaret replaced, was... but the Tories maintained control mm, with yes. Lee, John Major being yeah. elected and then in 1997 yeah tony blair took over yeah i mean mark basically makes the idea that in neither case was there this full realization that labor had been so captured by neoliberalism uh because there just wasn't really the time to have that realization but in the 2010 film there was such time well, yeah. it's, it's addressing specifically post-Fordism, the service economy. Post-2008. Um, um, yeah, economic probably collapse. probably the main backdrop of this one. The introduction of global warming and the new kind of centering of ecological politics as suddenly an important thing. And it kind of weaves this through in some beautiful passages uh, in the first two films, Robinson's interest were, was in the cities where capitalism was first built and in the non-places where it now silently spreads, the distribution centers and container ports that are unvisited by practically anyone except Robinson and the narrator's companion, but which web Britain into the global market. And then in this new one, it looks at the service economy and post-Fordism, which only accelerated under the Blairite government. Yeah, he compares it then to Chris Petit's content, another uh, video essay that Marlowe loved. Uh, about with all traveling his through southern England and thinking about stuff. The ruins which Robinson walks through here are partly the new ruins of a neoliberal culture that has not yet accepted its own demise, and which, for the moment, continues with the same old gestures like a zombie that does not know that it is dead. Mm -hmm. uh, a thing that Mark Fisher constantly comes back to when he describes uh, neoliberalism is zombies. He, he considers it to be an undead creature that keeps, no matter how much you shoot it, you know, it'll keep coming back in a different form, never quite dead, never quite alive. It also creates subjectivity that is zombie-like because people are made to work multiple jobs, they're uh, 
they, they can't live with family. You know, in general, his whole critique of alienation is no. further accelerated by neoliberalism and makes people into unthinking, unfeeling creatures that are taught not to think and feel. No. He brings up Frederick Jameson. It seems to be easier for us to imagine the thoroughgoing deterioration of the earth and of nature than the breakdown of late capitalism. I really want like a detailed explanation of exactly what the origin of that motherfucking quote is. <laughs> like the end of the world or end of, like was it originally this and then Zizek just like misquoted it as that <laughs> as the like better sounding one. I I've heard multiple origin accounts and even in capitalist realism he says it could have been Zizek or Jameson who cited right, that yeah. it is easier to imagine the end of capitalism or the end, or of, the the world end of the world than the than end the, of capitalism right or this much nerdier version that we have before us yeah the deterioration of the earth and of nature than the breakdown of late capitalism perhaps that is due to some weakness in our imaginations and then he goes into green politics, which is something you were just touching on. Right. Guess how many people mentioned in this essay believe that 9-11 was an inside <laughs> job. <laughs> okay. Okay. We need to discuss. Uh, he gets into environmental <laughs> catastrophe, how green politics shapes political culture. At the beginning, it was a fringe uh, movement, but now it's made even more centralized and this filmmaker centers it within the narrative of Robinson uh, in ruins. He brings up Margaret Atwood's surfacing and says that Robinson may be headed into some kind of dark Delusian communion with nature. And then he, he starts uh, discussing this in terms of like object-oriented ontology, right? There's a whole bunch of philosophers that he cites, as you say, one of whom, Lynn Margulis, uh, an American biologist, who, along with James Lovelock, came up with what was it? The Gaia hypothesis. They, they, I, Gaia I, hypothesis. Apparently, they wrote some like kind of formalized scientific definition and proposal for the famed Gaia hypothesis. Which, long story short, it's just what if the Earth was alive and like understanding the Earth and natural systems as an organic uh, set of processes. Super hippy-dippy shit. Margulis um, and uh, Lovelock are interesting bunch. Do you? How much do you know of them? Nothing. Nothing. Most people know it. just the Gaia hypothesis, I think, before they know the names of the people that... Right. So apparently per Fisher, Margulis also sort of continued this like effort of trying to make arguments for at least cooperation if not like communism via evolutionary biology 
seems to be her thing. Also, she didn't think 9-11 happened. <laughs> also, she might not think AIDS is real. Yeah, she... So, to be clear... She wrote a paper. In the very early days of the AIDS pandemic, before we, like, understood that it was a virus, and then shortly after we concluded it was virus, there was some scientific dissent saying, oh, I don't think we at this time can definitively say it. Yeah, but she didn't say that at the time. Right. She said this when? 2009. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you know. In 2009, Margulis uh, and seven others authored a position (laughs) paper concerning research on the the viability of round body forms of some spirochetes, syphilis, Lyme disease, and... uh, AIDS, resurgence of the great imitator, question mark, which states that detailed research that correlates life histories of symbiotic spirochetes to change in the immune system of associated vertebrates is sorely needed in urging the reinvestigation of the natural history of mammalian, tick-borne, and venereal transmission of spirochetes in relation to impairment of the human immune system. The paper went on to suggest that the possible direct causal involvement of spirochetes in their round bodies to symptoms of immune deficiency be carefully and vigorously investigated. Anyway, this also isn't the film, but kind of uh, fun to talk about. <laughs> um, yeah, the creator of this film uh, cited her like as a person that kind of informed the sort of ecological tone, the maliki well, shit, as I've been calling she's it. She's like the late 20th century version of darwin within darwin also think that bush did 9-11 well in terms of like her field of biology she seems to be like yeah a major figure putting forth theories about she's an evolutionary biologist who like also happens to be into some heavy dippy shit um yeah, she she basically is the biologist that supports loose change. Yep. She's uh we're all referencing Margolis uh, argued that the September 11th attacks were a false flag operation which had been used to justify the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq as well as unprecedented assaults on civil liberties. She claims that there were overwhelming evidence that the three buildings of the World Trade Center collapsed by controlled demolition. It is just funny because I'm imagining how many times Richard Dawkins like angrily is adjusting his bow tie as he's reading these statements by her. I mean, her and Richard Dawkins, for the context, were butting heads over this. Not over 9-11. Well, over different views on evolutionary biology. Exactly. And then potentially also 9-11. Yeah, as we were saying, uh, what all this comes down to is there are three-minute still shots of a flower in this fucking movie. Yeah, but that's not as fun to talk about. Okay, let's get into the other part of this discussion that Mark Fisher brings up. Because why does he bring up that? It's to argue for what we as a leftist political consciousness need to get in touch with the way in which the relation between nature and civilization played into revolutionary movements in the past and that we should kind of recapture that revolutionary spirit that 
might have been felt by somebody who was bludgeoned by a police officer's baton when looking at a landscape. And here we're looking at a landscape in documentary form. And he's literally, yeah, this guy goes to a place and it's like, this is where farmers worked. That's Marxist. (laughs) And he's meditating on what does the landscape mean? What's the revolutionary potentiality that has been taken away from it? Why has it been taken from it? Each individual like rock and (sighs) each individual like plot of land has like this I'm Does, sure fascinating history. Are you wondering if he says the word enclosure movement in the movie? Yes, he does. Mark Fisher weaves into an argument that he has in his mind. <laughs> he has an argument in his mind. I mean, to be clear, this movie does use the word Marx like a lot. Uh, three times no, a minute. No, <laughs> but Mark Fisher is arguing against the speculative realists. Right. And the OOOs. Object-oriented ontology. Don't worry, I also barely know what it means, and also I'm pretty sure Steve barely knows what it means. Um, but Mark Fisher brings them up. Yeah, I mean, I know it's all associated with Nick Land and anti-anthrocentrism are the things I know about it. The emphasis on extinction means that the concerns of Robinson and Ruins rhyme with the preoccupations that have emerged in speculative realist philosophy, which has focused on the spaces prior to, beyond, and after human life. In some respects, the work of philosophers such as Ray Brazier and Tim Morton restages the old conform confrontation between human finitude and the sublime which was the former subject of a certain kind of landscape art but where the older sublime concentrated on local natural phenomenons such as the ocean or volcanic eruption which could overwhelm and destroy the individual organism or whole cities speculative realism contemplates the extinction not only of the human world but of life and indeed matter itself. The prospect of catastrophe means the disjunction between the lived time of human experience and longer durations, not just a question of metaphysical contemplation, but a matter of urgent political concern. What do you make of this argument he's having? Because I see this as a, as a meta-argument he's having against these kind of trendy philosophies. Right, but is he contending that these philosophies are, like, is he arguing against the movie? Is he contending that these philosophies are baked into the film? Or Because aren't the people, like, named as influences those people? Like, No, not on the film. Oh, okay. He's saying that the emphasis on extinction rhymes with the preoccupations with these philosophies. Right, right. This anti-anthrocentrism. And I think what he's saying is that in order for a kind of leftist movement to gain resurgence again, we need to occupy this the the spatial arguments of ecological Mm -hmm. um, questions. Yeah, versus this anti-humanist nihilism of Right, which Brazier, Ray Brazier, for those that don't know, is a pretty influential nihilist philosopher. Uh, yeah, I almost think a, pessimist is the more technically correct. He wrote a thing called Nihil. Like, yeah, yeah, but even that is like sort of 
from the very brief summary, it just sounded like I'm going to do Nietzsche, but cooler and more modern or more postmodern. Well, yeah, he's the... Uh... If you've seen True Detective, the yeah. guy from True Detective said that this guy is an influence on that, so there's right. another trace. Like, there's very much a like sense of, I'm going to say that we should be cool with our own annihilation, but like different than the way Nietzsche said that. Like We should be cool with the eventuality of no life whatsoever, not even no human life. And, like, that is part of the thing uh, that we should embrace. And Heidegger was wrong for because for all his fucking talk, he was essentially just trying to stave off this fear of death, whereas I'm fully embracing it. I don't know. Um, uh, doesn't sound interesting to me, but, you know, if, you, if I was, like... A yeah. grad student that was studying... Yeah, or a high school kid from Ohio who, like, listened to a bunch of fucking emo and shit. Like, yeah, maybe. What about Tim Morton? Tim Morton is the OOO guy, the yeah, object-oriented the ontology. I'm not entirely... He came up with the idea of hyper-objects and cited uh, Bjork and one specific video uh, that she made, which is, like, robots... Everything Me is love? No. The hyper ballad, which is another kind of like philosophy that tries to get away from human centered. Right. And then famously, Nick Land approaches it by saying, like, what if Terminator is real and that's also a good thing? Which is also similar to uh, Bjork. I imagine Bjork read Nick Land and said, let me mm. make a music video with some... <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> just imagining Bjork reading Nick Land today and <laughs> coming up with cool ideas. All right, for the listener, what is Nick Land's general... Um, <laughs> Nick Land is a speedhead who used to be Mark Fisher's philosopher and then he got into racism. Mark uh, Fisher's philosopher? Or Mark I, Fisher's teacher. Rival. Prof professor. Oh, I, I thought they were in the same school together. I mean, he was like the professor leader of the CCRU while Mark Fisher was one of the students. When, when they say Nick Land got fired from Warwick for doing a bunch of drugs with his students, Mark Fisher was one of those students. That's their history together. And then like... Nick Land got, like, super racist and, like, reactionary, and, like, Mark Fisher, like, stayed left-wing, vaguely Marxist, post-Marxist, whatever the fuck, and, uh, I don't know, he occasionally sparred with him through the great dialectic of writing shit on blogs. But, uh, Which uh, Brazier hates. Yeah, he, but Brazier anyway, hates um, uh, sparring on blogs. And yeah. the term speculative realism. Whatever, dude. I don't give a shit about you fucking, like, weird-ass, like, oh, what if death is good? Fucking bullshit. Fuck you, bitch. <laughs> what, is, what if death is good? So, uh, to, I guess, finish out this chapter and finish out this book, because this is the last chapter and this is uh, the end of our first season, what did we learn about ontology? What did we learn about... Uh, Mark Fisher's philosophy. What have you learned from the last season? I don't know. It's a good book. You should read it. <laughs> I don't know. I fucking spent like 20-some hours talking about this shit. 
fuck you. <laughs> you know, like, just listen to the thing. I think, uh... Well, that's Marlo uh, punting the football on what you should take away from this. I think you should take away that hauntology is a very uh, interesting concept that people should think about when they think about leftist politics, especially in regards to cultural artifacts, when you listen to music, when you think about uh, mental health as depicted in, in capitalist media, you should possibly think about the way in which we don't need that. We don't have to be sad. We don't have to be depressed. And that there are forces which keep us depressed and keep us constantly reimagining futures that never came to be. And part of it is the music that we listen to, part of it is the ideology that's behind it, part of it are the, the way in which the places that we go to have been taken over by Starbucks or whatever the fuck he's mad at. Uh, Mark Fisher's always mad at Starbucks and always yep. mad at corporate uh, chains because they are emblematic of things that capitalists have taken away from you and that capitalists continue to take away from their workers, which is their time, their surplus enjoyment that they should be enjoying instead of working at their jobs. Uh, the public places in which you can go to enjoy in your off time. I recently went to a place expecting to have lots of public enjoyment of nature in the woods, and all I got was giant fucking privatized houses and and uh, general enclosed spaces that are cut off from the public, uh, which is a tragedy and one that are directly responsible by the people that are in political power and the political power that shapes the culture around it. And I think that pretty much summarizes my thoughts on Ghosts of My Life. Yep. Good book. The episode is brought to you by better health do you want to get therapy but like the thought of having to take time off work makes you sad and then you don't do your job as well but then you need the therapy to do your job good now you can text a guy and pay money for it better help <laughs> yeah no ontology is an entirely useful political framework uh to view contemporary 21st century marxism in i think political and cultural kind of context i think uh, really illuminated throughout this Hambone or whoever the fuck that blues singer was was pretty good Hambone. Uh, axe man yeah axe yeah he's uh and uh, i like david peace the 1974, 1979, 1980. Maybe you'd like to go back and watch the other ones. Of I really enjoyed uh, Life on Mars, Tinker Tailor Soldier's Spy. I know you didn't. Wait, wait. Life on Mars is that one that sucked. Well, I like the the using that as a uh, oh, okay. as a I was gonna say, as a as a sucked ass as a description for Looking the rest in peace, Mark Fisher. You would have loved Steve's takeaway from your book. I liked Life on Mars. No, I like using Life yes, on yes, Mars yes. as a you know. I like the the past is an alien planet. I think that's mm -hmm. a great description of watching period pieces that's great you know i liked going through the shining that was a fun fucking uh, yeah, was fun. movie adventure what a wacky essay inception, that, was. that was fun inception great discussion 
we got to talk about Drake, Kanye West, and pop music. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah, no, we had a good time. Hope you like the fucking podcast, nerds. Yeah, uh, we'll see you next season for our very exciting capitalist realism, which we started looking up, researching. Marlo's yep. read the book like yep. 30 fucking times. Yeah. So. Gonna breeze through this bitch. This was our homework. Next shit, we were phoning this bitch in. <laughs> All right. All right. See, see ya. ya.